greenfieldfest.org or by phone at 415-552-5580. This is a benefit for the year-round programs of San Francisco Green Film Festival. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sight this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw today is April the 25th, 2017. If you were just listening to the program just on here before me, uh, uh, women's reproductive rights, uh, probably the top of my list of issues. Let me just refer you to, once again, your New Yorkers, Margaret Talbot, in a recent New Yorker. Uh, I have to save it. It's just too much. I've got too much on, uh, too much on my plate here. Margaret Talbot has a great deal to say on the issue of abortion. Check her out. Uh, I guess if I were running things, uh, I think I would just have the New Yorker be my liberal arts, liberal arts curriculum. Anyway, as I said, so many things I just, I mean, I want to talk about Emily Dickinson today, but I want to just, just take just one minute uh, in case you haven't seen it. Oprah Winfrey has, uh, well, I think she deserves an award. She's done something remarkable. She has uh, produced as well as starred in, silly word, she does the lead, in a film on HBO. Gosh, I wish everybody had HBO once again. Um, it's all about a book by Rebecca Schlute, S-K-L-O-O-T. It's about the Gila cells, H-E-L-A. It's a strain of cells which are immortal. The title of this show is Henrietta Lacks. It's a feature film. Henrietta Lacks, L-A-C-K-S. This remarkable woman, uh, born 1920. um, Oh, gosh. uh, It's just too much to tell you about. You have to check it out. Uh, Now, this woman died of... uh, uh, died of cervical cancer it struck me 
struck me hard because I had the same illness at almost the same age. And uh, as you may have noticed, I I survived. This woman did not. Uh, on the other hand, let's see, she was born 13 years before I was. Anyway, she changed medical history. Genetics hit the jackpot in 1951 when Henrietta Lacks died of cervical cancer. She gave the world these cells, and they turned out to be immortal. I guess that's the word. That is, they didn't die. They just kept dividing. The science is way too complex for me. Uh, most of us, well, I'm sure we all had that little course in school that showed us how cells divide, and I guess we know that much. Anyway, this film is basically about Henrietta Lacks' family, the woman who wrote the book, Rebecca Skloot, S-K-L-O-O-T. She says she had, well, she was upset because when her father died, the uh, medical ethics of the doctors was not right, she said, the hospital. <coughs> she said it was not right. And so, since medical ethics was her theme, she decided to <coughs> zero in on this subject of uh, now this family it, the whole thing hit them is a disaster they uh anyway uh yeah henrietta herself the woman she died nine months before the book was published but Oprah winfrey plays this this woman's daughter she's 50 uh let's see what I wanted to say is just that Oprah Winfrey's performance is this testament to the humanity behind the history of science. That's all. There's always people involved in these things. The facts have no soul. Now, the medical establishment, they didn't even take the time to inform the family and to explain, you know, how the cells could contribute to research. Uh, at some point... You know, they, they must have realized that this was, this was a big deal. However, they tried to explain later to the family, um, that, uh, the research and the experiments led to, uh, things like the polio vaccine, uh, QL cancer research, leukemia, tuberculosis, AIDS, influenza, herpes, Parkinson's, and on and on and on. Apparently, since 1954, these cells have been uh, used to research uh, more illnesses than you can count. And it is unfortunate that no one at Johns Hopkins felt it was necessary to explain any of this stuff to the family. The meanest scene is one in which we see a doctor say, well, ah, <laughs> uh -huh. I don't think the family uh, would have understood in any case. Uh, actually, yes, I just think of Shakespeare's line. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. It didn't deceive so much as simply ignore, ignore the humanity involved. Uh, and, of course, uh, <laughs> As one of the doctors says, it was all for free. They got these uh, 
miraculous cells and uh, of course several members of the family uh, uh, some of the craziest were upset thinking that there should have been some compensation and of course the movie uh, explains that there was a great deal of I guess the word paranoia is used in the show about what the medical establishment has done to African Americans in the past now there goes eight minutes right away. Today is Emily Dickinson. I think I still have time. Oh, shoot. Yes, April. April is ending. April is ending. <laughs> I can do, I can do uh, Emily Dickinson and Poetry Month anytime I like. Uh, never mind. There has been a movie made about Emily Dickinson. Uh, let me mention that to you first. It's... Uh, Excerpt, well, it's taken more or less from Richard B. Sewell's uh, biography. Now, that's the very best biography yet. I have not read a better one. I think it was uh, mid-1970s that book came out. And I I still have it on my shelf. It's one of my most referred to books. Uh, it's really mostly about Emily's life, as is this movie, um... Now, the New Yorker review of the movie is called Poetic License. It's in the current issue for April 24th. And the movie, yes, A Quiet Passion. That's the name of the movie, A Quiet Passion. Uh, it's Anthony Lane's review. He's done something weird at the end of the review. It's completely bollocked up. I have a call in there to, to the magazine to ask them. Uh, why they have put this uh, this queer queer uh, poem? Uh, you know, uh, they they took one of Emily's most familiar poems and bollocks it up. I don't know what what the Dickens they were up to. Never mind, I'll find out. Uh, movie starts with the ticking of a clock. Of course, time, time, time. Obviously, Anthony Lane likes the movie. Uh, I am one of those people who will, of course, have a lot of problems with the the biographical material. Uh, however, uh, I no longer look for verisimilitude in biopics. I figure to each his own. Everyone has uh, his or her own Emily Dickinson. For example, I think that uh, the woman Mabel Loomis Todd, Emily's brother Austin, had a mistress named Mabel Loomis Todd. And the movie shows her to be superficial. And, uh, of course, Mabel Loomis Todd was one of the first to edit Emily's poems. And she said that they came to her at a time in her life when she most needed them. Uh, Emily had died, and she was helping to put together the first edition. She said the poems offered her comfort, uh, what, as if, as if a kingdom cared something, as if something huge, yes, cared. Uh, anyway, the lesbian spin was always about Austin's wife, Susan, said by many, many, many uh, biographers to be the true love of Emily Dickinson. She lived right across the lawn. Uh, 
And, of course, we all know that Vinnie, Sister Lavinia, burned most of Emily's letters. She had promised to burn them all, I guess. Anyway, she burned them. And uh, so we don't have all the letters. Uh, never mind all that. The movie is called A Quiet Passion. Cynthia Nixon plays Emily. You remember Cynthia Nixon. She played Miranda in Sex and the City. Cynthia Nixon has gone on to become a primary actor uh, on stage as well as in the pictures. Keith Carradine plays the father. Curious choice, but uh, yeah, you know. Uh, Sister Lavinia is played by Jennifer Eel, E-H-L-E, the daughter of the great Rosemary Harris. Uh, anyway, uh, hmm. Emily. Born 1830-died-1886-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah
These days, when fear of feeling is everywhere about us, and I would put here uh, in 2017, right, I would say that fear, fear is the overriding emotion of our time. Anyway, I think we should just let go of rational order and get out there and do a little singing and dancing. Uh, go out in the moonlight uh, <laughs> the way our mothers used to do. You can't make poetry out of thought. Poetry is passion. Yes, as this movie title says, a quiet passion. I would say it wasn't quiet at all. Uh, vroom, vroom is what it was. Uh, the great, the great circle. Now, linear thought must be seduced or changed by wild mind, by the fires of ecstasy. Emily Dickinson was Delphic in her songs. She made mind music. Uh, I think she heard the grass growing. She wrote, quote, Witchcraft is wiser than we. Now, the conventional Christianity of her time was certainly not her cup of tea. She wrote in a letter, I do not respect doctrines, doctrines. They, meaning her family, they are religious, except, <laughs> yes, except me, and address an eclipse every morning whom they call their father. <laughs> uh, uh, she goes on to talk about a woman in church, um, Yes, a woman in church who rolls out in crepe and, uh, yes, has an awakening. Uh, the sight of her, Emily says, uh, would intimidate Antichrist. At least it would have that effect on me. Emily Dickinson wrote that her business was circumference. Reading George Eliot's novel Middlemarch, Emily was convinced that the mysteries of human nature surpass the so-called mysteries of redemption. Ah, ah. Emily searched for the ineffable. She writes, Impossibility, like wine, exhilarates the man who tastes it. Possibility is flavorless. <laughs> or as I said earlier, the facts have no soul. Okay. Or, as Gertrude Stein put it, if a thing can be done, why do it? For both these poets, consciousness uh, is to the soul as syllable is to sense. These women could be sensual and cerebral in the same sentence. They knew the gun is loaded and that thought and feeling are not separate, that mind and body 
are part of the same package. In 1870, Emily wrote, If I read a book, and if it makes my whole body so cold, no fire ever can warm me. I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. Emily spoke of her ecstasy in living, even stuffy as things were, in Amherst in 1856. Her brother Austin married Susan Gilbert. They set up house next door. Emily's fierce relationship with Susan uh, is detailed exhaustively in that biography I mentioned by Richard Sewell, uh, Oh, we read of Emily's quarrels with Susan on that subject of religion. Okay. She wrote to Susan. And though in that last day the Jesus Christ you love remark he does not know me, there is a darker spirit will not disown its child. I use that for an epigraph, oh, a hundred years ago in college, because I was trying to prove that Emily was in league with the devil. No, I don't mean that literally, but that uh, she was acquainted, yes. There is a darker spirit will not disown its child. Right. So where was Emily coming from, she wrote here, quote, I see New Englandly. Her school was Amherst Academy. In 1847, she entered Mount Holyoke Female Seminary. Very early, she became low in health and withdrew, living always in her great brick house staying within its grounds, going deeper, deeper into the house when the doorbell rang. She told her friend, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, quote, All men say what to me? She restricted the number of questioners. Higginson found her father to be thin, dry, speechless in 1862. Emily writes, My father only reads on Sunday. He reads lonely and rigorous books. I have a brother and sister, Lavinia, born 1833. My mother does not care for thought. And father, too busy with his briefs to notice what we do. Well, he buys me many books, but begs me not to read them. He fears they joggle the mind. Emily's father died in 1874, she wrote. Though it is many nights, my mind never comes home. A year later, her mother became an invalid and suffered paralysis until she died in November of uh, 1882. Oh, dear, that's a long, 
long time. Let's see, almost, uh, yes, eight years. Emily writes, we were never intimate, mother and children, while she was our mother. When she became our child, affection came. Now, I think these Victorian Americans have a lot to teach us. Emily's not to be pitied, celestial evenings by a blazing wood fire, music, rampant fun, feasting, and a solitude. She wrote that polar privacy, a soul admitted to itself. Emily did not abuse her leisure. She baked, she gardened, she attended to her sewing and knitting. She wrote hundreds of letters as fascinating as the poems, played the piano, walked with her dog, Carlo. She says, Carlo, Carlo, large as myself, that my father bought me. I remember once writing a paper about Emily Dickinson's dog, Carlo, and... Emily Bronte's big dog, uh, Keeper. Keeper lay down on the grave of Emily Bronte and howled there, he lay there on the grave until he died. Apparently that's fact. Uh, anyway, Emily fled from distractions and conventional society. Uh, she wanted to develop her sixth sense, her imagination. Now, a mystic living among orthodox religious institutions and structured belief systems in Massachusetts in the 19th century needed to be alone. Emily's niece writes, Once I repeated to Aunt Emily what a neighbor had said, that time must pass very slowly for her who never went anywhere. She flashed back with Browning's line, Time? Why, time was all I wanted. Let's face it, Emily knew who she could talk to. The soul selects her own society and then shuts the door. The poet's tragedy, if it is a tragedy, is to love alone. Emily writes, quote, Till it has loved, no man or woman can become itself. Like Emily Bronte, across the sea, she is a solo act. But she has the angst of an existentialist. She wrote, It might be lonelier without the loneliness. <sighs> a poet who cannot be heard in the world must go deep into herself. She writes, this is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. Oh, uh, these iconoclastic poems. Uh, well, the world, uh, they didn't get it. They had no use for her voice at first. Uh, my article goes on and on about the uh, reception, non-reception of Emily's work. <laughs> Some of it. It's very funny. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, here, Reverend Herford, he says that her poems, couple were published uh, in the Boston Christian Register. He says, 
poems, the poem, one of the most offensive bits of contemptuous Unitarianism that I have met with. Emily had compared Christ's coming on earth in behalf of the Father with John Alden's service in behalf of Miles Standish. <laughs> At the end, Emily wrote, If I shouldn't be alive when the robins come, give the one in red cravat a memorial crumb. This has been Jennifer's tone with Stone Throw. Be back on the air next week at this time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Boys and girls, this is Chris Welch with a question and an answer for you. What if a famous feminist author whose activism was spurred by her own father's vicious macho bullying discovered that her father had become a woman? That's what happened to Susan Faludi, author of Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women, among other things. Susan Faludi has written a gripping memoir about searching for her father, about sexual identity, about the Holocaust. It's entitled In the Dark Room. Here is the answer. Susan Faludi will present In the Dark Room at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley on Tuesday, May the 2nd at 7.30 p.m. I look forward to hosting this KPFA evening. Get tickets at brownpapertickets.com and our lovely indie bookshops. That's Tuesday, May the 2th. Susan Faludi, In the Dark Room.